Well, once again, everybody, welcome to Table Church. We are so glad you're here. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Church, and I'm going to read our scripture for today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out and turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just put your hand in the air, and one of the ushers will come and give you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you just to keep this one. It's our gift to you. We're so glad that you are here. So open with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to uh, 50, 36 to 50. Here we go. It says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour, put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to take a moment and introduce our guest speaker today. As many of you know, we're in a series called The Table. And so this series is kind of reminding us who we are as Table Church. And um, I took the opportunity to invite my friend Wayne Schmidt to come speak during this series because I know that this is a particular passion area of his so Wayne oversees the North American Wesleyan churches. He's what we call the general superintendent, uh, quite a lofty title. Um, but he, for the better part of his career, was a local church pastor. Uh, he served at the same church for over 30 years, which is just awesome. Um, and then when I was in seminary, uh, he was the vice president of the seminary, and so I got to sit under his leadership for a time, and of course now again, uh, as he is our general superintendent. Uh, but more than any of that, the thing that I love about Wayne is that he has a heart for Jesus' table ministry, just like we do at Table Church. He sees the value and the, the sacredness of the table. In fact, I think that in another, in another life, uh, Wayne may have planted a church called Table Church. <laughs> and so I invited him to come and share during this series. So would you join me in welcoming Wayne Schmidt? Thank you. Thanks, brother. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. I've followed you really since your beginning, and so to be here in person and to be over at the Ministry Center and get a tour of that and to be able to be with you and worship with you today, I'd love to say you gave me a warm welcome, but it's cold out there. Uh, but I'm from West Michigan anyway, so I'm used to this kind of weather. 
It is true that one of my favorite things I've ever had the privilege of doing is being a local church pastor. And there were six of us when that church began. And over those 30 years, it grew. And when I look back on it, there are two things that meant the most to me about those 30 years. And it kind of is captured in all the amazing relationships. One is... We had the privilege of investing in people and then sending them out to start new churches. Did that about 10 times over those 30 years. We were a multiplying congregation. The other is that uh, we had the privilege of becoming a multi-ethnic church, reflecting our community, but even more importantly, reflecting God's heart. We had the privilege of bringing a little bit of heaven to earth as the various ethnicities of the community began, be, uh, became a part of our congregation and, and it was a gathering place for them. After that, as Pastor Phil mentioned, I went to the seminary and, uh, and that passion for a multi-ethnic kind of expression was even uh, more ingrained. I had become more aware of what the Bible has to say about it and it became a conviction that I wanted to live out every day. Now, when I was in the local church setting, uh, as I was mentioned, it was there a number of years, the church, when it was planted, was planted in a community that was about 2% ethnically diverse. And over the years, our congregation remained 2% ethnically diverse, but our, our community around us became 5% and then 10% and 15% and 20%. And so I'm a little slow. It takes me a while to catch on. And so 25 years into the journey, I was awakened to the fact that we'd become disconnected from the community. We said we loved. We didn't reflect our community any longer. And we began a journey that started with God confronting me I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end. When I went to the seminary then, and privilege of starting it and having stellar students like Pastor Phil, uh, was we had the opportunity to start from the beginning with that heart to be a multi-ethnic seminary. This is important to us because we believe people of all cultures have something to contribute to the great work of God, to the building of the church, women and men. This is how we talk about it. It's a kingdom force that includes multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-economic, women and men, lay and clergy, everywhere to everywhere in the world. You're part of a Wesleyan church family that has about 1,500 churches in the U.S. and Canada and about 5,000 and nearly 100 countries around the world. And we know we won't accomplish the mission we have without the amazing variety of people that God created. That's why one of the many reasons really why I love what Table Church is doing. Last six years, I've been part of leading that denomination and seeking to embed those same values. Uh, a number of years ago, we were only about 7% of our congregations would describe themselves as being multi-ethnic. Today, that's a third of our congregations, and more and more of them are starting just like yours. But before I go any further, let me ask you this question. How young do you think a person can be when they first realize they don't belong? Now, for me, that goes back a ways. It goes back 
to a school where I had a desk something like this. Uh, anybody go that far back that you uh, experienced? Okay, I see a few of you out there. And uh, I, uh, these desks story always tormented me. I have the same uh, opportunity and privilege that Pastor Phil does. We're both left-handed. And these weren't necessarily built for left-handers. They were built for right-handers. And in our particular school, in fifth grade, we would push our chairs together in a big group. And, and the bigger your group and the more central your desk was the group, the cooler your work were and I was in the biggest group when my desk was right in the middle of the group I thought I was really something and then our fifth grade teacher Mrs. Ingebretson, I remember her name to this day decided she would do an experiment and that experiment was that she would have us experience the caste system of India so she put all the different castes into a hat and in that hat was one little draw out that would relate to the person who was assigned to the untouchables and luck of the draw Wayne Schmidt picked the untouchables and so she took my chair out of that group and put it in a corner facing the wall and on the playground I wasn't allowed to play with anyone and in the lunch line I had to go last everybody and wait till everybody was through, then I could go. Now, it seemed like that experiment went on forever. It probably went on a week. But I tell you, at the end of the week, I felt like I didn't belong. It was devastating. In fact, all these years later, I can still get emotional when I think about it. Well, sixth grade went a little better because I got to really get engaged in one of my favorite things to do, which was basketball. And I grew up, as I mentioned, in the West Michigan area. We had snow like this on a pretty regular basis. I used to shovel the, the driveway of our house. There was a, a basket up above the garage. And, and I used to, when I started, I was so young, I couldn't shoot overhand. I had to shoot, you know, this way. And uh, I was a basketball player. And I got to sixth grade and this was just a dream come true because out of the whole class there were only eight boys and only six of them played basketball so I was the sixth man on that team uh, contributing to that team and uh, boy but wouldn't you know it junior high more boys showed up and then I was further down the list and by high school I wasn't even on the list anymore and this thing I'd loved and poured my life into the time of the youngest kid I didn't make the cut you know, it's one thing when you don't feel like you belong in a classroom. That's serious. Or when you have athletic dreams that don't fit you and you know you don't belong. But what happens if you don't belong spiritually? When our church started, we did something that people no longer really ever do. That is, we knocked on doors and uh, we said to people, uh, we're starting a new church, we'd love to have you join us. And if people said, we have a church home, said, give us the name of the church, we'll pray for it. And if they didn't have a church, we just take a moment, talk with them and say, would you mind sharing with us why that is? And the number one answer was, I'm afraid if I go to church, the people who are already there won't accept me. 
Well, that was a problem in Jesus' day. In fact, uh, Pastor Phil read Luke chapter 7, an account of this woman who in, comes to this group and Jesus ministers to her, forgives her just like Jesus. But, but you need to know a little of the backstory. In Luke chapter 5, just a couple chapters earlier, the people around the table were in another setting and Jesus was at another table. And at that table, Jesus was inviting tax collectors and sinners. And now the people, a couple chapters later in that passage that was read, uh, that uh, group is gathered again. And the last time they had seen him, it was described this way. Jesus uh, went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi and said to him, uh, come follow me. And Levi left everything and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet. There was a table. That's the series we're in. They, he called them to the table. And, and there were all kinds of tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees, that same group around the table with little later, uh, and uh, were teachers of the law, they complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you dig a little deeper, it's not only why do you eat and drink, but why do you recline at the table with? So in the culture of that day, on special occasions, tables were about this height. Now, on a daily basis, they ate at a table just like we do, about the regular height. But on these things, they, they would recline at the table. And this was a big, uh, you know, uh, event that was taking place. And then later, in the chapter that was read for us, Jesus is invited once again to eat with the Pharisees, to recline at their table. And, and what's significant about that is, you know, when you're relaxed like this at a table... Uh, your, your feet are out there, and so Jesus is eating at the table, not because they necessarily approved of him, but he was a celebrity, and so it really raised their standing if he would eat at their table, and so he's there, and this woman comes, and she washes his feet, and he forgives her, and all these people at the table said, you know, if, if Jesus really, like, was a prophet of God, he would know what kind of woman she is and that she doesn't belong at the table. She doesn't deserve forgiveness. You see, here's the difference. The Pharisees used the table to exclude people. Their value was sameness. Their value was that people like us are at our table. That's why they couldn't understand and ask Jesus this question. If he claims to be this teacher of the law, why in the world is he eaten with those kind of people? Did you know that the Pharisees had a whole list of people who weren't welcome to recline with them at the table? So let me just... Take a little poll here. How many of you would have got to be at the table in that day? Okay, here we go. Here's the people who were not allowed. Women. Whoops, that, that, that pretty well eliminates a good percentage of us this morning. Uh, Samaritans, because they were mixed Jews. Or Gentiles, for sure. They had no Jewish blood in them. 
Individuals, criminal records, anyone who had been disabled or sick, you had to be in perfect shape and well. And tax collectors, there were certain professions that were considered sinners. By the way, here's some of the other professions. If you have any of these jobs, let me know. Uh, camel drivers. Any camel drivers of mine? You can understand those camels were disgusting. I can go along with that one. But sailors, herdsmen, weavers, tailors, barbers, butchers, physicians, because they were around blood, business people. So who got to be at the table? You had to be male, Jewish, healthy, and have the right job. And the reason they felt so strongly about this is they had these, these rituals about cleanliness of food and who should be at the table. They were a table fellowship sect. This is like the opposite of table church. They were a table fellowship sect, which means they identified themselves by who was at the table and who they didn't let get to the table. That was their identity. And Jesus, this prophet, upends that by challenging them. You see, the Pharisees used their religious power to exclude people so their table fellowship stayed pure and everyone else didn't belong. In fact, they had this idea of spiritual cooties. You remember that? Anybody know what cooties? It goes back to these years, by the way, you know, when the girls and the boys didn't play together because they might get cooties from each other. And so they believed in spiritual cooties. If we eat with those people, that'll rub off on us and that'll contaminate us. Then Jesus comes along and says, I eat with those individuals not because I'm worried about getting their cooties, but because I believe by connecting with them and them experiencing my hospitality and my love, that might build a bridge that wouldn't otherwise be built. I won't change. They may change as a result of being at the table. And so he welcomes them. Here's the difference. I don't hear this difference talked about as much. The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was the, were that the Pharisees used the table to exclude people. Jesus used the table to include people. And it wasn't because he necessarily agreed or was approving everything that they did. No, no, no. In fact, if you dig in, here's what you find out. The Pharisees stopped their evaluation of people with their assessment of them. What's their job? What's their health? What's their ethnicity? What's And Jesus, on the other hand didn't get stopped with assessment, he went on to say, yes, some of these people are sinners. What's going to make the difference in their life? What's going to be the treatment that changes? You see, legalism stops with the judgment, the assessment. 
And Jesus doesn't even say their assessment's wrong. Yeah, there's some sinners at that table. But Jesus doesn't stop with the assessment. He goes on to the treatment. He says, yeah, the sick need a doctor. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm about. Building bridges to these individuals. It would be impossible to overestimate the difference that this made. The most popular teacher of that day invites anyone to set at the table with them. You know, that's why I'm convinced that what you're learning about in this series is really a core value for me that's been built over many years. While I was at that church for 30 years, I, I, I preached 1,300 different messages. There's about a dozen of them that emerged as life messages for me. This is one of them. I believe this is so close to the heart. I believe that Jesus changed more lives at the table than were ever changed in the temple. So this is exactly the kind of church Jesus would join <laughs> because he loves the table transformation that can take place. You know, every once in a while, I like to think about who's been at my table lately in a restaurant, in my house, in their house, who have I been around and I like to ask myself, were any of these people unfamiliar to me? Am I hanging around with just the people I already know? Or am I taking, put myself out there getting to know some new people? And are there people who are unlike me? They're older. They're younger. Multi-generational. They're different ethnicities than my ethnicity. They're women and men together at the table. There's these differences of economics, perhaps. And they're welcomed there. So let me take you back to that story of our church staying the same while our community became richly and wonderfully diverse. In 2005, I'm sitting in a conference and... The speaker gives a challenge, talking about holy discontent, saying, if there's something that bothers you, take a moment to write that down. I go, yeah, 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 speakers do that all the time. So I just sat in there, and God showed up. Not, a, not an audible voice, but like, got my attention. And he said, Wayne, you talk about regularly permeating this community with the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet now 25% of the community doesn't look at all and doesn't feel included at all in what you're doing as a church. So, Wayne, uh, at least have the integrity to say that by God's grace, we want to permeate 75% of this community with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the others, well, they're, they're on their own. And God took that moment with me to even more fully buried within me a conviction that he was going to hold me accountable for everyone who might be at my table, everyone who might be given the opportunity to come to know him. 
And then he took it a step further. He said, and Wayne, this isn't only about what like you can do for them. It's about what they can do for you. Because there are some dimensions of becoming a disciple that never happen in the context of sameness. There's something about the richness of various generations and ethnicities and economic situations and women and men. There's something about that that reminds us that our unity ultimately is not because we're all the same, but because we all have the privilege of being at his table. So, the last time I visited that church, it was pre-COVID. The last time I visited, it was that pre-COVID time. And, and here's what happened when I walked in. There was a group of Bhutanese uh, refugees near the door in the lobby. I sat in the front row, uh, and be, near me were a group of Rwandans. Their now African-American lead pastor introduced me to the leader of their Hispanic ministry, and in the service, their music was sung, and it had both Spanish and Swahili subtitles. Today, that congregation mirrors the community in its wonderful generational and ethnic diversity. And even more importantly, it mirrors heaven where people of all languages, nations, generations gather around the throne to give God glory. And every time we gather in that way at a table or in this place, it's a bit of heaven on earth. Thanks, Table Church, not for waiting 25 years to get around to it, but to we say we want to reach all of our community from the very beginning, not only for their benefit, but for ours as we grow in Christ. Amen.